all week long. It is. It is. Oh, I'm going to pass this on to a couple people a little stronger than me. Thank you, guys. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I wanted to bring that in. I wanted you to see what that's like. Today I want to share with you a quick story about some frogs, of all things. There were, uh, there were five frogs, and these five frogs were all sitting on a log, because that's what, that's what frogs do. They, they sit on logs. And so this is just kind of, it's kind of a math riddle, if you will. So there's five frogs sitting on a log, okay? Five frogs. Sitting on a log, it kind of rhymes, that's how riddles do. Man, I think it was heavier than it looks. Um, and you see, there's five frogs. Three of them thought they would jump off the log. Five frogs, three thought they would jump off the log. How many frogs are on the log? Somebody actually said four, <laughs> 11. <laughs> Y'all do math worse than me. <laughs> And preacher math is weird. Okay, five, three jump. Oh, 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 okay. There you go. You guys are awake on Sunday. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Three thought they would jump off, but they never actually followed through with their decision. You ever been like one of those frogs? Mmm, ribbit. Yeah. You see, in life, We have this habit, what we do, we consider the cost for everything, groceries, insurance, our house, our car, gas, college. We consider the cost for everything. But I think in Christianity, we don't always consider the cost. I don't think we've considered the true cost of jumping off the log, so to speak. So let's jump right in. Come on, they don't get any better, all right? Rivet, there we go. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say about counting the cost. We're in this series on finish. And really, in order to finish well, you need to count the cost, okay? And so this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 34. He shares this. And and this is kind of cool because it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he goes on, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He continues, he says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, and he wasn't able to finish. I think it should be like some LOLs in there. That's texting lingo for laugh out loud, for those of you who aren't sure. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation 
and he asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And he finishes off to this large crowd. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now let me illustrate what I have just read to you this way. Let's suppose that I had a desire to hike the whole Appalachian Trail. I've hiked parts of it. It would be great to hike the whole thing. That is kind of a desire. But let's, let's pretend that in hiking the whole Appalachian Trail, it's going to cost around $70,000 because you have to factor in time off work, some training, things like that. Uh, so it's around $70,000 to do it. I don't have that kind of money. And so let's suppose that Scott Faust heard of my desire and he offered to pay for the entire hike because he's generous like that. He hasn't told his wife yet, okay? But he, he did. He said, I'm going to pay for the entire hike. He said, I'm going to buy all the, the top-of-the-line gear, the lightweight bag, backpack, the, the lightweight tent. I'm going to buy all the top-of-the-line stuff, the clothing, the gear. I'm going to pay for your transportation, John, to fly out to Maine because I want to hike south. I want to be a southbound hiker. I want to hike south. So he's going to fly me out to Maine. I'm going to start at Catadon. And then he's also going to pay for a guide because he knows my sense of direction is not all that good, even on a southbound trail, okay? And he's going to pay for, for, some, for a personal trainer, give me about three months of some, some exercise to kind of get my body ready. And, and he's going to secure my job. He's going to cover my salary while I'm gone so my family doesn't suffer. And, and it's going to be a, a, like... The average is, is, I think the fastest time was three and a half months. That guy was crazy because he really just kind of ran the whole thing, and that's just not even fun. I'm more about a sixth or seventh month, kind of year and a half hiker to get there. But Scott, being generous, he's going to cover all that. He's going to preach for me. He's going to pay my salary. He's just going to take care of it while I hike the Appalachian Trail. It's totally free for me. But if I accept his free offer, I have just committed myself to many months of training and a huge effort and even some danger. And I've also committed myself to Scott because he's going to cover my cost. And so I've committed myself to him because I don't want to let him down. I have to do this well. But here, Jesus Christ freely offers the water of life to everyone who thirsts. But we need to understand that when we receive his free offer, we are also no longer our own. We have now been bought with a price. To truly follow Christ, we must consider the cost and not begin to follow him superficially, only to turn back later when things get tough. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he warns us about. In order to finish well, we need to make sure that we aren't following Christ superficially. Verse 25 is crucial for this. All right, He says, uh, now the large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said... Hold on. That's like a preacher's dream, by the way. A large crowd. You know, when you're in youth ministry, people say, one day you'll be a real minister. And then when you start preaching and you go to a conference and they say, hey, if you do it like us, you'll be a big preacher. You'll, you'll grow up to be a big preacher. You have a big church. And, and then you'll be impacting the world. And, and so that's all, all preachers. It's what you hear in preacher school, you know. 
And so here it is. Jesus has this large crowd following him. Every minister desires more followers. No lie. Ministers with large congregations, they get their books published. They go, they speak at all these things. And everybody thinks they're doing it right. They're successful. Even in church, we measure success by numbers, unfortunately. But Jesus was different. He had this large crowd following him. And essentially, when he said all this to them, he was saying to some of them, you really don't want to follow me. This is where you're going to leave me, and I'm okay with that. That's what Jesus is saying in these verses that I've shared with you, and we're going to get into this. So he says, it, it, was, it was the exciting thing to do to follow Jesus. Maybe as you're following Jesus, you knew someone who, who might be healed by him, or, or maybe you yourself would be blessed by Jesus, but Jesus wanted to weed out those who were following him for the show, for the superficial reasons. He knew that when spiritual battle heated up, these people were going to fall away, that they might even cause damage to what he was bringing. And so he turns to this large crowd and he lays out these demands for following him well and for discipleship. And not only that, but for finishing well. I think I need to point out here that there are many Christians who draw a sharp distinction with salvation and discipleship. They think that, oh, salvation is God's free gift, but discipleship is costly. And it is. It's cost you your time. It's going to cost you your money. It's going to cost you some things emotionally. And these people would also say every Christian should try and pursue discipleship, but it's not really necessary. It's what some folks believe. In other words, there are some who are saved but never commit themselves to being disciples. They say it's possible to receive Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to necessarily follow Him as your Lord. That's what people believe. That's what Christian people believe. I can't find any basis for that belief in the New Testament, just in case you're wondering. But I can, however, find many scriptures that refute that thought. You see, to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior means to follow Him as Lord. Salvation is not just a decision you make for a moment and then get baptized. It's the mighty power of God in raising a dead soul to eternal life. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The new life that God gives us results in a new way of life in accord with its nature, namely growth in holiness. You see, the seed of God's word will bear fruit of discipleship in our lives when we apply it. As believers, we need to grow as disciples. We may never perfectly arrive to that in this life, but if a person claims to be a believer but isn't seeking to grow in obedience to Christ, we're fooling ourselves. It's both and. It's not one or the other. So to finish well, you have to wrap your minds around that. See, Paul's words in his letter to Titus, he says this in Titus 1, 16. He says to Titus, hey, they profess to know God, but their deeds... By their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul's Paul's given us a warning here. We don't want to be the they that he's referring to. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be detestable and disobedient and worthless to God. It is possible unfortunately, to follow Christ superficially. And people do it even today. 
And it's to those followers that Jesus lays out the cost of finishing well. He knows the battle is going to be intense, and he doesn't want to recruit anyone under false pretenses. So I'm here to tell you today, folks, if you don't know this, the battle is going to be intense. Satan is going to attack, and he's good at what he does. He's going to bring lies. He's going to bring temptation. He's going to bring things into your family that he's going to use to try to separate you. The battle is going to be intense. And if you are superficially following Jesus, you are going to crumble in the battle. Brothers and sisters, to follow Jesus truly, we have to consider the cost. Jesus lays out two of the costs of discipleship in Luke 14, 26 through 27. And then he gives two parables in Luke 14, 28 through 32 that make the same overall point. Namely this, a person must carefully consider the cost before just jumping in to what it is to follow Jesus. And he states a third cost of discipleship towards the end that we're going to talk about. And just to make sure we get it, he gives us a little bit more. He talks about salt to illustrate the cost of what happens when we don't follow him truly. And he finishes out with this warning. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus refers to sitting down and counting the cost in this first part. He says it's careful thinking opposed to impulsive decisions made in a moment of emotion. We, We do that sometimes. It seems to me that as you look at our world today, our religious, our Christian world today, that our evangelistic methods are big on emotion and little on reason and fact and scripture. We get people into a stadium to hear, to hear testimonies from famous athletes or, or movie stars about how Christ has changed their life, how God has blessed them, or a Christian artist has a concert. And then, and then there's a rousing speaker who promises how Christ can meet your every need. And then an invitation is given, and, and there's counselors primed up, and they walk forward, and everybody thinks, oh, people are going forward. I'm going to go forward too. All these people on the verge of a decision, they say, oh, the band is playing a song, and, and going forward feels like the right thing to do. And in the swell of emotion, A person gets out of his seat and walks forward and makes a decision for Christ. (sighs) People clap. And then that person goes home. And they're by themselves. You see, too often our spiritual decision to follow Christ is based more on emotion than on careful thought about what it means to really follow him. Years ago, I was working at camp. (laughs) Junior high camp. I love junior high camp because junior high kids are just so honest and like day one, Monday night, this guy's speaking and, and he's speaking. He's really, he does it good. He lays out, this is what we're doing for the week. And, and you need to leave all this stuff at the door. And he's going on and on. Decision time, this boy comes forward. He's like a sixth or seventh grader. He comes forward. He's like, man, I need to be baptized. I've been talking to my parents, but I just know this is it. I need to be baptized. So we call his parents and we say, hey, your son wants to be baptized. Mom and dad are like, oh yeah, we've been talking about it. It's great. Baptize him. Go ahead. So Monday night, right before bedtime, we take him to the pool. We baptize this young man. Oh, it's great. Thursday night. (laughs) Speaker's talking. He's sharing. He's really getting into to what you're going to take home and, and how you're going to be a light. And he's talking actually about salt and light. Um, and he's just, he's just laying it out there. Same young man comes forward. He's crying. <laughs> and I'm not making fun of him. Okay, this is just this is as real as it gets. He's crying. And he's like, I need to rededicate and I need to repent. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> At this point, I'm giggling a little bit. I'm like, we're at church camp. What'd you do? You got baptized Tuesday night. 
What happened? I, I don't think I was ready. Wait a minute, it was three days ago. You said you've been talking to your parents. But that's what happens. In emotion, we, we make an emotional decision. And, and since then, I've, I've switched the way I do camp since that summer. And people say to me, how many kids did you baptize at camp? I say none. I think in, in the last 10 years, I've baptized like two or three kids at camp, but I've been connected with all of them in a, in a way for follow-up. Um, and, and that's the thing. Kids come forward at camp, and they're like, hey, I want to get baptized. I'm like, man, that's awesome. We're going to talk about it this week, and you're going to go home, and you're going to talk with your youth pastor, and you're going to talk with your parents, and you're going to get baptized at home because I'm not going to see you until next summer. I can't disciple you. I can't be accountable to you. We don't have a daily relationship where I can take you from infancy to spiritual growth. And so I call their parents. And I go, hey, your son, your daughter wants to be baptized. And I want to encourage you to do it when they get home so that you guys can set them up for success. Because I'll tell you, I can sell ice to an Eskimo. But that's not what God called me to do. He called me to preach the word in season and out of season. And when that happens, people's lives will change. But sometimes that initial change is based on emotion and the moment. And we need to take people into the depth of God's word so they really understand the decision they're making when they come up out of the waters of baptism and what it is to leave their old self behind and walk in a newness of life. Too often our spiritual decision to follow Jesus Christ is based more on emotion than on thought and and careful examining of his word and what it really means to follow Jesus. And here Jesus says to this crowd, people that are interested enough to be going along with him, he says, hey, consider the cost of following me. We must consider the cost. Christ gives three of them. The first one, he says, we must hate our families in verse 26. We must hate our families and hate ourselves. Whoa. That's hard. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, In other places, it says that, that we're to love our families. And now Jesus says we're to hate our families. Wait a second. Is he contradicting himself? No, he is not. But he puts us this way so that we stop and think about the demand that he is making. He means that our allegiance, our love for him has to be so great in comparison that our love for our families and even our own lives looks like hatred. This is not a verse that says, go kick your dog and smack your kids. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, you love me first, you love me most, no matter what. Normally, there's no conflict when Christ talks about loving our families But sometimes there's a tug of war that develops where family members put pressure on us to back off or even abandon our love for Christ or what we're doing for the kingdom. And in those situations, we do not love either Christ or the family member if we give in to that pressure. We don't love the family member because if we bow to that pressure, we're saying that Christ is not worthy of being followed above all others. And we keep the family member from seriously considering the claims of Christ. We don't love Christ in that situation because we have put a sinful human being who did not give themselves up for our sin in a higher place than the spotless Lamb of God. See, that happens so much in Christian homes and Christian families. God freely offered His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. The late theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer was raised in a non-Christian home. And I don't want to speak to this about family because, because we, we try to make that choice. I have people tell me when I do marriage counseling, I'm going to love my wife first. And I said, if you do that, your marriage isn't going to last. And they look at me like I've got three heads because they're young and they know everything. So you do that, your marriage isn't going to last. You put, God, you put God first. Jesus is the head of your marriage. If he's not the head of your marriage as a Christian couple, it, you're
love your wife more than you love Christ. You do, however, love her as he loves the church. That's a whole other sermon, sorry. When um, Francis, that's who it is. Francis, theologian, you can look him up. He became a Christian, and his father didn't want him to go to college because he wanted to go to, like, to Bible college. And uh, his father didn't want him to become a minister. And so young Francis called to be a minister, and he didn't know what to do. And the moment finally came where he had to make a decision that he was going to go with what he thought God wanted, or he was going to submit to his father's wishes. So he asked in a strange voice, Pop, just give me a few minutes to go down in the cellar and pray. Like, this was it. His dad is like, what are you going to do? Because I'm not paying for you to go to this Jesus college. In fear and uncertainty, the story goes that he went down to the cellar and he wept hot tears of sorrow for his father. And then in an act of desperate and simple faith, he did something that he would never advise anyone else to do, but what he felt was right for him at the time. And he prayed, oh God, please show me. And then he took out a coin and he said, heads, I'll go in spite of dad's desires. And he flipped a coin and it was heads. Still weeping, he cried out, God, be patient with me. If it's tails this time, I'll go. And he flipped the coin. And it was, t- it was tails. It really was. <laughs> he flipped the coin and it was tails. Third time, he pleads, God, once more, I don't want to make a mistake with my father. And I don't want to make a mistake with you, but please now let it be heads again. And he flipped the coin and it was heads. So he went upstairs and he told his dad, that he had to go. And the story goes that his dad looked hard at him and didn't say a word. He turned and went out to slam the door. But just before the door hit the frame, his voice came through, I'll pay for the first half year. Yeah. It was many years later that Francis's dad became a Christian. But Francis Schaefer believes that it was this moment was the basis of his salvation when in effect he said to his father, I must follow the Lord. Let me be clear about something here, especially to our young people. As Christian young people, you should seek to be obedient to your parents in all things unless they're asking you to go against what God wants you to do. You should appeal to them as Francis did in a submissive manner, but if it comes down to a choice to obey your parents and disobey Christ or to obey Christ and disobey your parents, You must follow Christ. As a Christian wife, the same thing. You may have an unbelieving husband who says, I don't want you to go to church. While you must seek to be loving and pleasant wife, to be a loving and pleasant wife, you need to also explain to your husband that following Christ is more important to you than your relationship with anyone on this earth who's not going to honor Christ. This is clear application of verse 26 when Jesus says, we must hate even our own lives. Again, he means in comparison with our love for him, not just out of anger. He says we must carry our own cross. Verse 27. We need to understand something here. And I I brought the cross in the way I did because I want you to see it. And I want you to remember this. The cross was not an implement of decoration back then. It wasn't an implement of irritation. It wasn't even a, a little bit of an inconvenience. The cross was the, was the device for a slow, torturous death. And I carried it in. It was kind of funny. But when Christ says that you need to have 
a willingness to bear reproach for his name's sake. That's what he means when he says, carry your cross. Our Savior suffered the rejection and the agony of the people that he created on the cross. And if we follow after him, we have to be prepared for the same treatment. If people despise us for being Christians, we must bless them in return. Jesus didn't curse anybody when he was on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And too often as Christians, we want to be right and we want to be heard rather than the desire we should have to be love. That's what he's talking about when he says, carry your cross. We should never do anything to provoke persecution. But if we suffer some for the sake of righteousness, that's okay because Jesus Christ will take care of us, whatever that looks like. Again, this is a process where we all have to grow. If you mess up, if you blow it, then you must confess it to the Lord and seek to be obedient the next time that you have opportunity to suffer for Him. But if we aren't involved in the process of carrying our own cross in death to self, we are not on the path of the disciple of Jesus Christ. We are not preparing to finish well. You see, no one likes this next one either that I'm going to talk about. You thought that was uncomfortable? Pick your feet up because I'm about to stomp all over them. We must give up all of our possessions. What? Luke 14, So therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. After telling two parables about considering the cost, a parable of a tower. He tells that story. And he says, consider the cost before making a commitment. And then he says, therefore, no one can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now, does Jesus mean literally that we have to get rid of everything we own and take a vow of poverty and wear a robe and nothing else to, in order to be a Christian? Is that what he means? I don't think so. But I believe that Jesus is getting at is the fact that there are two possible lords that we can serve. And they, the two are exclusive. You can serve God or you can serve money. Most of us think we can combine them with God taking the lead. I'll serve God mostly, but I also, I got to have a little jingle. I got to have a little change in my pocket. No. Jesus says that doesn't work. Luke 16.33 says you cannot serve God and wealth. Sorry, 1613. I wrote that wrong in my notes. You cannot serve God and wealth. In other words, you can't just add Jesus to your already materialistic lifestyle as a way of rounding out your spiritual needs. It doesn't work that way. To be a Christian means that you have to be bought. You have been bought with a price and you are not your own. Go ahead and write down 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to read through that this week and focus on verses 19 and 20 because that's where Jesus says, You have been bought with a price. Uh, you are not your own. Paul says, You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You are not your own. Nothing you own is your own. 1 Corinthians 6. Read that this week. You become the slave of Jesus and he owns everything. I like the way that Juan Carlos Ortiz tells the story of the pearl of great price. All right, it's in parable of Jesus. He tell, Jesus tells the story, but, but Juan Ortiz tells it like this. He says, a man sees this pearl and he says to the merchant, I want the pearl. How much is it? And the seller says, it's very expensive. And the man says, well, well, how much? And the seller says, a lot. And the man says, well, how much? Do you think I could buy it? And the seller says, oh, yeah, everyone can buy it. Well, but I thought you said it was expensive. So I did. Well, how much? So I'm trying to keep them separate for you. It's hard to do. 
monologues are difficult. The seller says, everything you have. All right, I'll buy it. Okay, what do you have? Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? Well, that's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars in my pocket. Well, how much? Let's see. Man counts out around $100. He said, good. That's mine too. What else do you have? That's all, nothing else. Well, where do you live? Asked the seller. In my house. You own a home. Well, yes, I own a home. It's paid for? Yes. It's mine. (laughs) What else do you have? That's all, nothing else. Where do you expect me to sleep in my camper? Oh, you have a camper. (laughs) Seller writes that, it's mine. $10,000, $100, house, camper. The seller's got the pearl. It's a great pearl. Where do you expect me to sleep in my camper? So he said, am I supposed to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car? We have two. Are they paid for? Yes, they're mine. Two cars. He says, you've taken my money, my house, My camper, my car. Where's my family going to live? Oh, you have a family? Yes, I have a wife and three kids. They're mine. Wait a second. This is getting real. Suddenly the seller exclaims, I almost forgot. Wait, the seller's over here. I almost forgot. You too. You too. Everything becomes mine. Your wife, your children, your house, your money, your cars, and you. And he goes on, he said, but listen. I will allow you to use all of these things for the time being. But don't forget, they are all mine. They're all mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I am now the owner. You see, that's what Jesus means when he says that we must give up all of our possessions in order to be his disciple, in order to finish well. That's the mindset we need to have. It's not your car. What do you mean it's not my car? That means when somebody needs you to put something in your truck and take it across town for them, you say, all right, it's Jesus' truck. That's the value. That's what it means. And, and in order to finish well, it's a mindset we have to have. And, and, and spoiler alert, in case you're wondering, Jesus isn't the Lord of a tenth. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. We're just managers of it for him. And of course, in return, we gain all the riches of heaven for all eternity. Still want that camper? See, that's the pearl, that that pearl of great value. When you really count the cost, this is what Jesus is talking about. He says it's mine, you're mine. What you have is mine. But still, we need to sit down and determine if we're willing to give that, if we're willing to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior of everything, from our families to our possessions to our very lives, we should consider the cost of not following Christ also. He warns us in this. He says, if we make a profession of following Christ, but then go back on our commitment, people are going to ridicule us like they would mock a man who started to build a tower but couldn't complete it. He claimed that he was a Christian, but look at him now. He's stumbling around drunk. He gave up. He claimed to be a Christian, but look what he's done. He's stolen from work. Some Christian he is. 
See, doing that, we face the damaging effects of being defeated by the enemy because we did not consider the intensity of the battle that we would be facing. Satan loves it when a Christian's testimony is ruined because he didn't consider the demands of following Christ in this world. Then Jesus uses the third illustration to show the cost of not following him, the one of salt that has become tasteless. And we, we undersell this a lot. The Bible talks about salt, and we're like, yeah, it's salt because we have it in everywhere. There's all kinds of salt. There's Himalayan sea salt, and there's, there's coarse ground sea salt, and there's just old iodized salt, and there's salt everywhere, and we take it for granted. But something to consider is that salt in Jesus' day oftentimes would be corrupted by other substances from the way that it was transported. And if the moisture hit the salt, it would evaporate. It would leave behind these impure minerals like little dirt. And the salt lost its saltiness and it was worthless for any useful purpose. And back then, salt had a major useful purpose. It preserved food. It had to be thrown away. If you've got to throw away your whole bag of salt, that means you've got other stuff that's going to go bad now. Worthless salt is not a good thing. And Jesus is saying, if a follower of his doesn't live as though he should live, he's useless to God. Whether Jesus is referring to a false believer being judged or a true believer being taken out of this life because of sin. But either way, in order to finish well, we need to follow Jesus Christ by putting him above everything else. So that we can be useful to God. That's the last thing we need to consider. To follow Christ truly, we must put him above everything else in life. Jesus clearly asserts his supremacy and his authority in in these verses. What we're... What mere man could rightly claim that everyone must hate their closest family members in comparison to their love for him. If someone said that, we would call that person a cult leader. Unless he were God in human flesh. What man could tell his followers, follow me into death? Jesus could because he is God. What man could tell people to give up all their possessions for his sake? And his sake actually be the best thing for them. Jesus can do it with authority because he is the Lord. He alone deserves to be first above everything else in all of our lives because he is the Lord God who willingly offered himself on the cross for our sins. His words here are tough and sobering because the reality is when we read through what I shared with you this morning, we all fall short. But we must honestly work at applying them to our lives and to our hearts. Is there any relationship that comes before Christ in your life? There shouldn't be. If he is first, then obviously you will be spending time with him alone in his word, in prayer, in devotion, in service. You'll be fellowshipping with him every day. Oh, I pray and read my Bible about every other day. No. Count the cost. It's going to cost you your time. You won't allow any other relationship to draw you away from obedience to Christ. You will confess. You will do battle with sin every day because sin is what comes in and separates us from him. He is, is he the Lord of your plans? Is he the Lord of your thoughts? Is he the Lord of all that you do? Or are you selfishly clinging to your plans, to your way, instead of seeking to please him in all things? beginning with every thought that you entertain. Real quick, I want to share with you what it is to hate your own life. I don't know what that was, but it scared me. 
I was brought up in a very unique household. I always said that my family put the fun and dysfunctional. And for the first 20 years of my life, the thoughts and the things that my dad put into my mind were all less than average. And, and to hate your own life is when I look back on that and say no more. When those, those corrupt things that my dad implement, implemented into me pop into my brain, I, I physically sometimes say out loud, no more. I'm not going to have those thoughts. I'm not going to have that anger. I'm not going to have those things in my mind. And I've been driving by myself and actually said, no. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm by myself because people with me would be like, what? I wasn't even I was asleep. <laughs> you know? But we have to do it. Don't allow those things. If you don't hate your own life and daily carry your cross, you won't finish well. And you're not his disciple. And I got to tell you, I'm not perfect at it. But I battle it every day. And it's just like I tell some of our young men when they share something they're struggling with. I say, it does my heart good to know that you're struggling with that. Because as long as we're struggling with it, we're not giving in. Hate your own life. Is he the Lord of your finances and possessions? Are you faithful in managing these things for his purposes? Do you give generously? Do you give faithfully to the work of the church? Or... Could the love of money be choking out the word of God in your life? That's a, that's a conversation you have to have with yourself. You see, salvation is absolutely free. But once you receive it, it costs you everything. To truly follow Christ, we must consider the cost and put him above everything else. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we come to our response time this morning, I have a math riddle for you. A hundred people were sitting in a church listening to what it takes to finish well for Christ. They all thought it was a good idea to go to win and commit to grow, to follow Christ, to make disciples and to finish well. At the end of the day, how many are still sitting on the log? We can choose to sit on the log every Sunday and be fed every Sunday or we can choose to not just think about going out, but go out and serve and share and intentionally tell others about our God, how awesome our God is, and make disciples according to his plan that he left for us. And to one day hear, word, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. My response this morning I will do whatever it takes here on earth to hear those words as I am welcomed into heaven. What does that look like for you? Is it baptism? I would love to get together and talk with you about that so you can consider the cost. Maybe for you it's prayer, it's repentance, it's rededication. The elders are here. They would love to go and pray with you. But whatever your response is today, will you stand and sing our response song and respond to God's word accordingly as you count the cost?